Nothing like just messing around with your computer in the last few minutes wondering if it's going to work or not, which is why I don't even like these things. I mean, good grief. Uh, but anyway, this is John's class, as you know, and you're probably very disappointed. He has gone down in Orlando, and he's got to check the box on doing that thing with, the, with Disney World or something. So if he's like me, he's going to go down there and say, that box is checked. That's the, uh, one of the most overrated places uh, with great potential, but it just never just turns out the way you'd like it to. Um, I remember taking the girls to Disneyland in California one time, and it was G July, and we were in San Diego, and we were like, ah, let's just drive up there. Well, you know, it was ice cream cone melting weather, and we stood in line for an hour to, the, you know, to see it's a small world, and we got right up there to jump in the little carts, and we finally, you know, finally we're going to do this thing, and then, of course, the ride broke. And so we had to just leave and go to another line somewhere. And I think that day we ended up on two rides and eating, you know, $15 hot dogs or something. And I thought, okay, Walt was a genius. So John has been teaching on the Holy Spirit. And uh, I haven't looked at his whole lesson plan. I know he's got some of this from H. Leo Bowles. And he's uh, got whatever he's got mapped out that he's going to go along with. And uh, I know that he's going to do a, a, a super job. Uh, this is one of the more difficult subject matters for, for a whole lot of reasons and for some of the things that, that John has talked about. And as he gets into it, he'll be able to develop that. There's a lot of controversy on the subject. Uh, if you're like me, you know, you're growing up maybe in the 1970s or so, and you thought, well, that's when the controversy started. Oh, no. Uh, we're going to find out that it, uh, the roots go back a lot further than that. But uh, let me just tell you a few illustrations. I have told you, I think, probably before these, so that tells you a couple of things. One... Uh, you know, I only have so many stories. But two, uh, these are, I think, very poignant for what we're discussing. And so I just want them to be in your mind as we talk about these things. Let me tell you about one individual that grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, he uh, would go down to the coast, the Gulf Coast of Alabama, when he was a small boy and visit with his aunt. When he was a child, his parents were uh, killed in a car wreck. And so he actually went to live with this aunt that he used to visit on the Gulf Coast. And, uh, and she said, well, you know, you're, one thing that uh, has been neglected in your training is your religious training. And he was a smart young man, and so she began to train him and study with him. And uh, so then she, were, she was taking him to uh, worship services. And he says, well, I don't know about all this. And she says, oh, don't worry. She says, you will be convicted with the Holy Spirit. And so what you need to do is just pray and that you need to, you know, go into your room at night and get on your knees. And he says, well, how's that going to happen? And she says, well, there'll be a feeling. There'll be something come upon you. There'll be some kind of event that happens. You may see something move. You may hear a voice. You may see a cloud. All these things. There's just so many different manifestations of the Holy Spirit. This is what you're going to know. And you're going to know then that the Holy Spirit is convicting you. So he would go into his room and he would pray and he would get down on his knees and he'd do all these things. And he was waiting for this conviction. Uh, pretty soon he just decided that maybe that was all a bunch of nonsense. So he turned away from the Bible and he says, you know what, Auntie, I love you, but this is full of superstition. This is full of the mystical. This is full of things that uh, it just not, doesn't meet the cogent sanity test. And so he turned away from religion altogether. Now, what his name was, ladies and gentlemen, was Edward O. Wilson. So Edward O. Wilson, 
has been one of the leading proponents for evolution and atheism in America and has taught out of Harvard and Yale and influenced millions of children and kids and youth and people that send, you know, go off to college and spend all that money to have the, this indoctrination into this worldliness. There was a chance in Edward O. Wilson's life as an intellectual, a young man who was very, very smart, who was looking for answers about why we're here, how we, how we came to be here. And instead of real, rational Bible teaching and the truth that came through the Holy Spirit, he was given mystical, superstitious stories about the Holy Spirit. He was given all of these ideas and things that were just kind of better felt than told. Things that you don't prove, but you just say, take my word for it. This is how it works. And we lost him, and we lost that battle, and he goes on. His aunt was a member of the Baptist church in the Gulf Coast area. There's a book that I have at home. It's about this thick. I thought we had it in the library. I actually had it in my bag, but it was so big and heavy with all this stuff in it, I, I just decided not to bring it. I thought we had it in the library. I was going to drag it out for you and show you. This book is as big as the dictionary. It is a debate that took place in 1825 between Nathan Rice and Alexander Campbell. If you have not read that, I highly recommend that exhaustive study. It's exhaustive because it's comprehensive from A to Z on everything you would ever want to know and even think about with baptism and the Holy Spirit. But two, it's exhaustive because you will exhaust yourself getting through it. If you've ever read, like some of these books my daughter's reading for great books over at Faulkner, you know, we don't talk like that anymore. And they're just unbelievable. It's kind of difficult to navigate our way through. We've changed a whole lot. And I will tell you, I believe that our mind has been weakened a lot since about the 1800s, and we have a lot of fat in the brain, and so it's just hard for us to exercise that. When I read that book for the first time, I started listing all the words I didn't know what they meant. And my, my list got so long by page three, I decided to give up on that idea because I'd never have a lifetime to look them all up. So I gave that up, and I just kind of started skimming through it, but... That book is three-quarters of it on baptism and the purpose of baptism. But the last fourth of it all has to do with the Holy Spirit. Let me read you something out of a small book I have before I go on with that to show you and tell you what that book and how that debate developed. I've got in my hand this little book right here. I'm not going to tell you what it is right now, but I'm going to talk about regeneration and sanctification. Hopefully we all in this class understand those ideas. We believe the scriptures teach that in order to be saved, men must be regenerated or born again. That regeneration consists in giving a holy disposition to the mind, that it is affected in a manner above our comprehension by the Holy Spirit, in connection with divine truth, so as to secure our voluntary obedience to the gospel, and that its proper evidence appears. Whoop, now I can't turn the page in this ancient little book. That's normally why I don't look things up in the Bible either. I can hardly ever find them in front of you. Uh, but it says, proper evidence appears in the holy fruits of repentance, faith, and newness of life. Okay, I'm going to read another passage to you out of uh, page 66 on sanctification. We believe the scriptures teach that sanctification is the process by which, according to the will of God, we are made partakers of his holiness. That it is progressive work. That it is begun in regeneration. Regeneration. 
that it is carried on in the hearts of believers by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, the sealer and comforter, in continual use of the appointed means, especially the word of God, but by self-examination, self-denial, watchfulness and prayer, and in the practice of all godly exercise and duties. And then there is a passage, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 3, for this is the will of God and the very God of peace, and that he will work what he wills through you. Now, why did I read those passages to you? Because I want you to test yourself on whether you think you believe that or not, whether you agree with those things or not, because what that is out of is the standard manual for Baptist churches, Edward Hiscox. That's what Alexander Campbell, this, the Lord's church cut its eye teeth in America on debating that very idea that that is false doctrine. But you couldn't recognize it now in most churches. We've come so far from our understanding on these basic principles that you hear this bantered about as if, as if we did get our ideas from down the street or we did get it from a standard Baptist manual. I have the Methodist manual at home. It says the same thing. Presbyterianism, the same thing. All the Calvinists, the same thing. The Holy Spirit debate actually started because the roots of it was total depravity in the hearts of man. And if I brought my Campbell-Rice debate, that's what I was going to read to you, is those statements by Nathan Rice who said, you could not be converted on your own because of the depravity of man. And the Word, as powerful as it is, apparently cannot convict you of your sins, and the Holy Spirit would do this in conjunction with but not through. Now, this may be getting some complicated for some of you that have not studied this subject. Let me use Giff as an example since he's back there with a 50-pound brain and he should be teaching this class. And I made the mistake of raising my hand in front of John before Giff did. And that was before I realized I was going to be gone all week on a trip. And I thought Giff certainly would have done better. But I've got at home a sword that's hanging up in a, in a mantle. And I would have brought it this morning, but I couldn't get it out of its case without ruining the case. But if I take that sword and I start poking GIF with it, all right, I'm poking GIF with it. He's getting poked by the sword, but it is not me directly. If I put the sword down and I hit GIF or touch him, I am directly touching GIF. But if I pick up the sword and I poke GIF, I'm doing it, but it's through the instrumentality of the sword. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, and it is not a direct operation. The two ideas are completely different. Completely different. And so when we begin to talk about Holy Spirit and who He is and how He works and what He has done, those are the ideas that we have to be able to be cognitive of. And as we go through, I will go through some scriptures with you, I think, that will show you that one of our biggest misunderstandings are that we no longer are critical thinkers. And when I say that, I don't mean it's not a bad thing. You say, well, critical, that in my house means bad. You don't be critical of others. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about scholastic scholarship. It's, it's critical thinking. It's how you read an article and say, is that really true? That's what the New York Times said about this, and these are the statistics. But what are those statistics really telling you about the subject matter? That's critical thinking. 
And that's what we need in biblical study, rational thought. And we go to these passages, and I'm going to show you a couple, where we have, even in this auditorium, we'll pull them out again and again out of context. We'll think that that's about us. And it's not. It has to do with the early church in the first century. When they heard that, they understood it in a completely different way. And how dare us come along 2,000 years later and say, well, yeah, that applies to us and it applies us to the, the same way. No, it does not. And we're so loose with these verses we throw around and say, well, look at this. He says he'll do anything for us if we pray in his name. He never told you that. He told his apostles that before he went to the cross. He says, you haven't asked anything in my name, but you will. And when that happens and I'm gone, I will do everything for you. I will do everything You ask in my name, you'll be able to do it. All right, let me show you the slides because John's going to come back and get angry that I haven't covered him. So I'm going to cover some of his slides, but then we're going to get into uh, some of the, uh, the misunderstandings. All right, so this is John's pattern right here. He wants to show you the personality, the character of the Holy Spirit, and how we misunderstand him because many times we don't attach to him what he is doing. For instance... The Holy Spirit speaks, speaks in words, we will find out. The Holy Spirit testifies. The Holy Spirit teaches. He guides. Whoops. That's a bunch of them. He searches. He comforts. He determines. He intercedes. Now, if you saw a book up there with a couple of chapters, you would see a common theme, wouldn't you? The book that I see the most up there is John, right? I see John 14, 15, and 16. So that's where I'm going to jump off into this muddy water right now. In Matthew 3 and 11, when John the Baptist is talking, how many people do you think he's talking to? He's already told them. He's, he's got disciples. They, and the passage says, it starts off in Matthew chapter 3. It says, they came from all around Jerusalem, Judea, and across the Jordan. Then the Pharisees come to him and he says, you offspring of vipers. Then as he's talking, he says in verse 11, I indeed baptize you in water under repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I and whose shoes I'm not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. Now, how many people do you think were standing there listening to him that were baptized in the Holy Spirit? Think about that for a second. How many people do we know of in the New Testament that had a Holy Spirit baptism, which we define as the direct administration from Jesus Christ himself? We know of about 14 in a household. That's all we know of. But John is speaking to a bunch of people there. Now, I don't know what your idea is of being baptized in fire, but how many people standing there were baptized in fire? And if somebody was baptized in fire, depending upon your thoughts, were they baptized in the Holy Spirit as well? Because either way you go, I'm going to narrow you down to a very small crowd on one of those. But he says it in generality, like as if it's going to apply to all of you. People, that happens in the Bible again and again and again. But our understanding later is that is very specific. 
And we find that out in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. He's going to now get specificity to who it's really talking about. When the apostles are gathered around, Jesus is about to say his, his final discourse. He's about to be ascended into heaven. And he charged them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which said, He, you heard from me, for John and Dad indeed baptized with water. But you, you apostles, you should be baptized in the Holy Spirit, not many days hence. So you could read Matthew 3 and 11, and you could be like a Calvinist, and you can run around and say, well, look at that. We've got Holy Spirit baptism. We've got promise there. And we say, well, how can It's no more clear. Well, how, how do they do that? But you know what? We do the same thing with a lot of passages. I'm going to show it to you. We just want them to read the Bible and say, open your eyes and forget all of the things that you've heard in your, in your traditional church. We want you to have be critical thinkers. But you know what? We're doing the same thing with so many of these subjects. Look at John 14, 15, and 16 now. I'm going to show you something. John 14, 15, and 16, you're going to notice most of those characteristics and how the Holy Spirit works is up there in John 14, 15, and 16. After 16, obviously comes 17, but when I say that, you should be thinking what? Jesus' prayer to the Father on behalf of his apostles. Who's he talking to in the final discourse? He's washed their feet. He comes over. He starts talking to them after that. It's his last evening with them. He's about to go to the garden. He's going to be hung on the cross. They still don't understand. And in 14, 15, and 16, he is speaking to his closest apostles. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, does that apply to you and me or not? Well, the way, and the, yes, it does. And why do we know that? I'm going to use an obvious one because I want you to nod your head and say, well, sure it does. He says later on, if any man loves me, he will keep my commandments. And the rest of the Bible teaches if you love God, you will keep his commandments. You abide in him as he abides in you. It fits in the contextual understanding of the rest of the Bible. But when he said that, he was talking to 12. But the rest of 14, 15, and 16, you're going to have a very difficult time trying to spread it out amongst Christians 2,000 years later. Because if this isn't the office of an apostleship, there is no difference between them and us. Let me show you. John 14, 16, and 17. Look at verse 16 and 17. I will pray the Father, and he should give you another comforter, that he may be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, for it beholdeth him not, neither knoweth him. You know him, for he abideth with you and shall be in you. Now, I've heard Christians go around quoting that all the time and say, look at this. He promised us the comforter. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have the comforter, that's not the verse that teaches you that, because you better go down to verse 26 and find out. What's he talking about? Verse 26, but the comforter, even the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He shall teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said unto you. He's talking to those 12. He says, not only am I leaving, but I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. Because I'm leaving, you're going to be distraught, but you will be comforted. And how's that going to happen? He's going to teach you and bring you to your remembrance all things that I said. Now, why don't you at least be consistent? If you think that applies to you, then go down the street and try to debate a Pentecostal on that subject. You're going to have a hard time. That's why I brought up the Campbell-Rice debate. Because years ago, we had this straight. 
And that's where we were able to grow because people saw the rational position that we had, but now we've just kind of, we're starting to muddy it up and get to a point where we're starting to just kind of copy off the television what we hear or some, some loose words here and loose words there without being critical thinkers. He is specifically talking to his apostles. He's giving them the office of apostleship, and they are going to be very different than the rest of the... In fact, they're going to be different than the rest of the Christians that received inspiration and miraculous gifts in the first century. They're the only ones that are going to go and lay hands on people and pass on the Holy Spirit. Look at John 15 and 26. Same subject, same audience. But when the comfort is come, when I will send, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall bear witness of me. The Holy Spirit will bear witness of Jesus. How's that going to happen? We're going to get back to that. Flip over and later into the conversation in John chapter 16. Let's start with verse 7. 16 and 7, still talking to his apostles, just those individuals in one room. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I go, I will send him unto you. And he, when he has come, will convict the world in respect of sin. That's one of the jobs. If we looked up there, we could say, hey, he not only does these things, but he convicts. Because that's his mission. He's going to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment, of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to the Father. And ye behold me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world hath not been judged or hath been judged. Verse 12 now, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot hear them now. You cannot bear them now. You're not ready. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, there's a name for you, there's a title, there's a label. For the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, he shall guide you into all the truth. For he shall not speak from himself. What does that tell you about the Holy Spirit? Is he taking instructions? He is. He's not speaking from himself. He's speaking the things that he was told. But whatsoever things he shall hear, these he shall what? Speak. Feeling? No, speak. I felt it on my heart. No, speak. He's going to speak. You want to claim that today? Well, then we probably need to have a discussion. But he's going to speak to him. He's not going to speak from himself, but he's going to speak. He shall declare unto you the things that are to come. How many of you can declare the things that are to come? He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and declare it unto you. By the way, that's an interesting passage right there. The Holy Spirit was here to glorify who? Okay, so the Pentecostals are going to do what? So I've had discussions lately with them, and they're very interesting, very consistent, but also they're going to de-glorify Jesus and glorify the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what they do. But the Holy Spirit came to glorify Jesus. Jesus came to glorify whom? God. Right? He'll say that in John 17. All right. In John 17, uh, he prays then for his apostles for certain things. And you can tell it's an intimate prayer. It's a, it's a pleading of a man that has lived with these individuals for three years. 
And they have walked the, the walk. They have climbed the mountains. They have swam the seas together. They have done all of these things, and then he prays for them. In Titus 1 and 9, you know, a lot of people will talk about the... Uh, well, I'll tell you what. Let's just let's leave that off and go back to the bearing of the witness. This might be easier. We said, he shall bear witness of me. In verse 27, John 15 and 27, look at the next verse after the one we read. And you also shall bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Okay, now I hear people talking about witnessing today. Not so. Melvin could tell you in a court of law that your word is hearsay, unless you saw those events. If you weren't a partaker of those events, then you're, you're not a witness. That's the way it works. That's the way it worked back then. He says, you're going to bear witness of me because you've been with me from the beginning. That was also the qualification of apostle, was it not? When they went to have to select another apostle, he said, you know, they, they said so that this office would be filled. Who has been there from his baptism all the way up into the resurrection? That was it. And Paul said the same thing as well. Now go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. And he says, you'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days since. Now, in verse 8, he's going to explain how that Holy Spirit and they will be witnesses. In Acts 1 and 8. Very, and, and you all know this one. It's all very common verse, but now we're putting it all together. In Acts 1 and 8, he says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Again, to whom? The apostles. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. So there was power that they were going to receive. They were going to be his witnesses. And then in Luke 24 and 49, he had, told, he had told them the same thing. Behold, I send forth the promise of the Father upon you. Notice it's a promise. It's about the power. And you tarry in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Now look at Hebrews 2 and 4. God also... Bearing witness with them through signs, wonders, manifold powers, and gifts of the Holy Spirit. God also bearing witness with them through signs, wonders, manifold powers, gifts of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was going to be that kind of witness. How can the Holy Spirit witness with the apostles? The same as Jesus did the signs, they were for a purpose. And those signs when the apostleship were for a purpose. Because they weren't supposed to take anybody's word that says, well, yeah, I, I've got this message from God. People claim that today. But where is the confirmation of the inspiration? In Mark chapter 16 and verse 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that disbelieveth shall be condemned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out demons. They shall speak with new tongues. And they shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall in no wise harm them. And they shall lay hands on the sick. And they will recover. And when Jesus had said these things, he was ascended up into heaven and sat down on the right hand of God. And they went forth preaching everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word by the signs that followed. Every one of these passages now are related back to back. John 14, 15, and 16 is a conversation between Jesus and his apostles 
that you see developed throughout the rest of Scripture. Just one example of how we can loosely go to a Scripture and say, look at this. He says, I'll be able to do anything in His name. We'll say, well, not really. Well, maybe not really because he was talking about an office of apostleship. Look at uh, when we talked about Mark. I will show you another example. Uh, incidentally, just if, if some of you that really know your Bible are already thinking of Acts 5 and 32, I believe it's the same thing. I think it's a parallel passage. He says, and we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. How does that witness? We just read it. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God hath given to them that obey him. You go, aha, to them that obey him. I've obeyed him. How come I don't have the Holy Spirit and a witness with me? Well, in Mark 16 and, and, and 17, what did he say? These signs shall accompany them that believe. Do you believe? Yes, you do. Can you do those signs? No, you can't. So you go, well, that doesn't apply to me. Well, why doesn't it apply to you? Well, because I can't do those signs. That's not a rational answer. Not all of them could drink poison. Not all of them would lay their hands on the sick. Not all of them would speak with tongues. But you said you believed. If you are part of that group, why doesn't it apply to you? Now, you might be able to stand and debate and say, nobody can do those things. That's reason one why it doesn't continue to this day but you as an individual to say well I know that's miraculous it doesn't apply to me but that's not what it says it says those signs will follow them that believe you have to have an understanding the contextual understanding of the scripture otherwise you will take something that's not quite so plain where it's not talking about open miraculous things and you'll take the language and try to adapt it for yourself but I take you back to Mark 16 and 17 and say it's the same thing. Just like Acts in 5 and 32. Look at Acts 10 and 4. Here's some interesting language. We know what happens in Acts chapter 10. This is the Holy Spirit bearing witness. This is a Holy Spirit baptism. This is a Holy Spirit falling upon them. This is a Holy Spirit having been received. While Peter yet spake these things, in verse 44, the Holy Spirit fell on them that heard the word. And they of the circumcision that believed were amazed, and as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out. There's language for you. And where did we find that first? In Joel 2, 28 through 32, right? And in Acts chapter 2, Peter repeats that, says, This is that. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, upon your sons and daughters. They shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Right? Pouring out of the Spirit. Now we get to Acts chapter 10. He says it's poured out of the gift of the Holy Spirit. What was poured out? The gift of the Holy Spirit. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, after the witness of the Holy Spirit, what does Peter say? Can any man forbid them water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They prayed and they tarried certain days. So, does it follow the pattern of what we think should happen? It does. If we understand what the bearing witness of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit's work was to confirm the word. Some people say, well, you know, that was confirmation of the first century. What do we have now? Well, we have a whole lot now, but I will tell you this, just like Melvin would attest to, if you have a court case uh, like Engel versus Vitale in 1962, you're living under the results and the effects of that court case. It doesn't go away. 
It's still there. You can't pray in a public school. It's there. Bam. Period. Mic drop. Okay? Once the word was confirmed, it was confirmed for what? All time. John said, he did many more signs and wonders in the, in the, in the midst of his apostles that are not recorded in this book. But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And once you believe, you have life in his name. And that goes on and on and on. Once confirmed, always confirmed. If not, why don't you talk to Anthony Flew? He was the big atheist that had many debates like with uh, Thomas Warren. And he said, well, you know what? I would like to cross-examine those witnesses. Wouldn't you give? Wouldn't you? They said they saw a live body. Wouldn't I like to cross-examine those witnesses? Well, you all have watched CSI enough. You go back and you go, you pull a case file and you go, those people are dead and gone, but can you read in there what they were asked, what they said? And then put it together and go, wait a minute. How come this was the answer? How come they didn't do anything for 50 days? If they had visions, why didn't they didn't keep having them? Why didn't they go off into some hole in Damascus and proclaim it? Why did they proclaim it in the very temple where he, was, where he was dragged out and they wanted to stone him? Why did they accuse those people right there in the temple? All of those witnesses are still there. Those testimonies are alive and well today. Let's look at some more of what the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit's works were in the first century. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 10 through 14, Paul is talking here and he begins to change his pronouns. And this is what I'm going to tell you again. This is another one of those things where we could really get off there and go, wait, 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 what do you, what do you mean? What, do you, what is he saying about us, we? Well, no. He's talking about you, Corinthians, and me. And then he says, we. But he's not even including the Corinthians in this. I don't believe and he's not including us. This passage has been talked about many times and people skim over it. This is the biggest, strongest passage we have on, on inspiration today. This is it. This is the strongest passage on inspiration, particularly for those people that say, well, that's not in the red letters. I know what you all are saying, but that's not in the red letters in my Bible. You know, you, you heard people that way? Well, I just want to know what Jesus said. Paul, he had some ideas, but that's not Jesus. I've had that many times. This passage right here and others that Paul says, no, I got direct revelation from Jesus, right? In Galatians chapter 1. But here he's telling you exactly how it worked. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, let's start with verse 10. But unto us God revealed them through his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For who among men knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of man that is in him? Even so, the things of God none know us, save the Spirit of God that is in him. But we receive not the Spirit that is from the world. But we receive the Spirit that is from God that we might know. Okay, there's the key. He's talking about inspiration. He's about direct revelation and knowledge that we might know the things that are freely given to us by God. Which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teacheth. This isn't a philosophy but which the Spirit teaches, combining spiritual things with spiritual words, if you have the American standard italicized there, but in the New King James is not. But the same thought, right? So the Spirit is teaching through words. 
Another example in Hebrews chapter 3 and 7, you don't have to look it up, I can read it real quick for you. But in Hebrews 3, the writer of Hebrews quotes and he said, Wherefore, even as the Holy Spirit saith, today you shall hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation. What's he quoting? He's quoting Isaiah, or uh, Psalms, isn't he? Psalms 95. And he said, well, David wrote Psalms 95, and he says, well, the Spirit said. And so the Spirit teaches with words. And we find out in Acts chapter 8, right, not only did the angels go down into the way that leads into Gaza, but also what? The Holy Spirit told Philip, go and attach yourself into this chariot. He told him that. It was a, it was a conversation, one-way conversation. It wasn't something felt. It wasn't on his heart. I heard a girl went up in Michigan. We talked to one time. She said, well, you know, I just think that God's put this on my heart. This is, this is the Holy Spirit talking to me. And I said, well, what does that sound like? Well, it was this feeling that she had that she would go off and marry this, uh, this individual from another denomination. And it's when she was doing that, I said, well, you've got to think about your future, your children, all the ramifications of the decision you're going to make. She goes, well, I, I know that's all thinking, but I, you know, the Holy Spirit's put this on my heart. So she went off and married him. Of course, she left the church. She's worshiping at some big community church now or something. But that's not, you don't read any of that. That's not how the Holy Spirit ever worked. And even in 1 Peter, when we're told that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, but their interpretation was not private interpretation. It wasn't moving that they had to interpret. They were told. And we're told that again and again. In Ephesians chapter 3, now we know that Paul said we have a spirit from God that he knows these things. That's how God revealed them. And what did he reveal? The rest of that passage is what? That the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow partakers, and fellow uh, members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise, right? So he said that's been revealed to me from the Holy Spirit that we know these things because they had no Bibles. Now, in Ephesians chapter 3, what does that mean for you and I? Ephesians chapter 3, 2 through 5. If so be that you have heard of the dispensation that was given me to you, word. What does dispensation mean there? It's just, it's this, it's an administration, right? It's an administration. It is a, it's a, a, a stewardship. This is the stewardship. If you've heard the dispensation of the grace of God that was given to me. By the way, I believe that that grace of God given to Paul that he talks about four or five times in the New Testament is attesting to the gifts, miraculous direct operation appointing him to apostleship and the gifts of an apostle. And I can show you that. Maybe we get to it. But <clears throat> for instance, Ephesians chapter 4 and 7 and 8, he says almost the same thing. But unto each one of us was given, grace given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And then he goes on to talk about miraculous gifts. But Ephesians chapter 3, 2 through 5. If so be that you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word, in your behalf. How that by revelation was made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote before in few words. I wrote that down. Whereby when you read, you can perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. When you read, you can perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. I mean, some of the greatest teaching we have on the Holy Spirit is that he wasn't able to even help, didn't help, and give the apostles an understanding faith in the way they worked, right? Because Paul said in the Galatian letter, he said he withstood Peter to the face, right? He says, well, I withstood him to the face. Why? Because he stood condemned. Peter, who had been given the grace of God, the stewardship over what? The doctrine to the Jews. 
And Paul said, I've been giving it to the Gentiles. But then he withstood Peter because Peter was wrong. Even so that he influenced Barnabas. And of course, um, Doug talked about that the other day. I thought it was a good example. And people think, well, you know, they had such an advantage with direct operation of the Holy Spirit. As opposed to somebody touching gift directly or touching gift with the point of the sword. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And piercing, even the dividing the soul of spirit, bones and marrow, quick to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. Right? Hebrews 4 and 12. What kind of time do I have here? All right. <clears throat> Let me show you some examples of just bad jumping around. It's easy to teach a class like this, just tell you where we've all been wrong, but I'm not going to tell you what all the right answers are. You're going to have to get somebody a lot smarter like Melvin up here to tell you that. But I will tell you in 2 Timothy 1 and 14, I've had people come up and say, look at this. That good thing which was committed unto you, guard through the Holy Spirit which, which dwelleth in us. Say, look at that. Look at that. And I go, okay, well, that's fine. But let's go back down to verse 6 first. I mean, haven't you ever been debating with a Calvinist or something? And when they come to you with these passages, what do you all say? Because it's really hard if you don't, you know, with a, when the lines were drawn in the sand, it was through the instrumentality of the word or was it, it was not. But look at verse 6, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6. For which cause I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee through the laying of my hands. So who's the Timothy letter to? Who was it written by? And when he told him that they were going to do these things, we, us, who was he talking to? And then, if you claim verse 14, then I'm going to ask you about Say, when in the world did Paul lay his hands on you? How did you get it? You see how loose we can be? And it happens all the time. Ephesians 4, 7, and 8. But to each one of us was given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. You can stop reading right there and go, look, see? But you read the very next verse, which is verse 8. Ephesians 4 and 8. Wherefore he saith, he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, gave gifts unto men. Then he quotes the Old Testament about the miraculous. All right? In fact, if you look at the rest of that passage, uh, well, I'll tell you what, go to Galatians. Here's a good one. Galatians chapter 3, 2 through 5. Here's one that's bannered about as well. Galatians 3, chapter 2 through 5. This only what I learned from you, received you the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Most of us would say, oh, well, we've received it by the hearing of faith. Well, not so quick. Hold on. Hold on. Let's go down. Verse 3 says, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, you now perfected in the flesh? Well, we have that same struggle today. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if it be indeed in vain? Then he's going to come up with a proof. He says, He therefore that supplieth to you the Spirit worketh miracles among you, doeth it by the works of the law and by the hearing of the faith. So I would just simply ask you, how did the Galatians understand his letter? They didn't understand it like you and I do, or that we've heard. No, not at all, because then he comes back and says, well, he that supplieth to you the Spirit. He's talking about himself. He was there. <laughs> and then he says, that's the, that's the proof. 
In other words, they're understanding these statements in a completely different way because they had no Bible. When they walked into an assembly like that, there were people that were speaking in tongues and in interpreting, and there was somebody that was an inspired prophet. There was inspired people with uh, direction and leadership and faith and all of these things that were much different. Now, I want to show you a slide. Let me just try to get back to the slide. In our last, where did I put that silly thing? All right, so let me show you. I'm going to flip through, and I think you have seen this before, but just to kind of reiterate, John's going to have to go over this lesson to straighten you all out. I know that. That's okay. Holy Spirit, what he's doing is in the middle. Passage of Scripture on the left. Building faith. You're born again through the Spirit, born of the water and the Spirit, John 6, 63. You're quickened or made alive, right? By the way, that's a great passage to know and cross-reference to Romans 8. So you're either led by the Spirit or led by the flesh. That's it. There's only two options. And people say, well, there it is. There it is. You're led by the Spirit. And you say, okay, well, just answer one simple question. Where does the Word of God fall into that? I mean, how dare we say flesh, right? In John 6 and 63, Jesus said, my words... He said, the flesh profiteth nothing, the spirit giveth life. The words that I speak, they are spirit, they are life. Titus 3 and 5, the spirit saves, sanctifies, justifies, cleanses, convicts in John 16 and 8. We read that, right? Holy Spirit, the mission, he was going to come and convict the world of sin. Then you go down on the right. Every one of those missions of the Holy Spirit is later said to be done through the word of God. So now you could either take Nathan Rice's position to say it's the Holy Spirit in conjunction with the Word of God, or you can take an Alexander Camel position in the debate and say it is through the instrumentality of the Word, poking gift. And it doesn't mean that there's less of a poke or that there's you know, something that doesn't last or that there's ineffectual. And then, of course, we don't, want to, we don't want to confuse ourselves and start talking about what the Holy Spirit does today in heaven in your behalf as opposed to something that he's laying on your heart, right? He intercedes, just like Jesus mediates. Where does Jesus mediate for you? Well, where do you think the Holy Spirit mediates or intercedes for you, right? That has nothing to do with this discussion, but it's brought up all the time. I just bring that up. All right, now that I've confused all of you, Go back this week for your homework. Read the, Nath the uh, Rice-Campbell debate. It'll take you about uh, 58 hours. And then, uh, and then come back, and then John will be back here and tell you how much money he spent at uh, Disney World having a great time. And then he'll straighten you all out and go through these slides like they should have been. Thanks a lot.